0: Hi, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. Nathan Cole, and today with me, really excited to have as my guest, Hugh Fink, comic, writer, violinist, and uh, he's been gracious enough to join me here at Disney Hall for a change. And welcome to Stand Partners for
1: Life, Hugh. Thank you. It's great to be here, Nathan, instead of taping a podcast at a smoke-filled comedy club, (laughs) to be at a classy concert hall.
0: I like it. We we try to keep it classy here at Disney uh, most of the time. Well, we, we can just jump right into that. I mean, you've spent so much of your life in those clubs, performing, writing, but what's not usual for a, for a comic is that you have a serious history as a violinist, and we were talking about that just a, a bit ago, you and I, but give us the quick version of your violin life, uh, because that was either came before or maybe
1: concurrently with your your life in comedy. Sure. My parents were classical music lovers. My dad was the attorney for the Indianapolis Symphony, the union, musicians' union. So as a very young kid, I would be taken to these concerts of the orchestra, and I loved it. And I guess I told my parents at age four or five that I wanted to study violin. And they were not so sure about that because they knew it was a tough instrument, and they already owned a piano, but they were friends with the concert master of the Indianapolis Symphony at the time, Eric Rosenblith. And um, he had known a little about this new Suzuki method, although he was not a proponent of it at all because he was like a pupil of um, Carl Flesch or like some mm-hmm. of these old year Old school. Old school. Like he was super old school, but he wasn't sure how to tell my parents to start off a five-year-old with lessons. He wasn't going to do it. So there was a Suzuki teacher, one, in Indianapolis, and that's who I studied with. And this would have been
0: not so long, I bet, after the method really took hold in the U.S. Because
1: I started Suzuki, and that was early 80s. You're right, right, so I was behind, So I started in the late 60s. Wow. And um, I ended up studying Suzuki for eight years and going to the Suzuki Summer Institute at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Stevens Point, okay. Right? And Shiniki came. Wow. Yes. So I actually was part of the generation where... I got to see him live. Well, that's extraordinary. And he was like a, it was kind of extraordinary. Now, I didn't have much interaction with him, but I remember I think he was like a chain-smoking, even wow. though he lived like a ripe old age, and he was yeah. very sort of Buddha-esque, just this is why... And he don't. I mean, he didn't speak much English either. Right. Right? But um, that was a great experience. I think what it taught me, Nathan, was beyond the violin part, that to meet other young violinists who are just normal kids... And like, it was a camp, so we'd have classes and master classes and all that, but we'd also have so much playing around time, playing softball all the time and eating in the cafeteria. And it sort of introduced me to the fun of music as a social activity, just riffing with these other musicians and having, you know. So you were a teenager at this point or younger? I started when I was six, but by, yes, then I, I did it like six, seven years in a row okay so i was a young teen
0: yeah, yeah i think my first real music camps i would say were yeah that 10 11 12 range and yeah same thing just to meet other kids from other parts of the country that, that were doing what i was doing i grew up in kentucky you grew up in indiana correct so they, i wonder if it was a similar it's not like everybody else around us was playing violin and no no yeah. in fact
1: i think you've seen some of my stand-up where i do a lot of jokes about how it, you know, being in the in a country western place like Indiana, it was sort of weird to be a classical violinist. But I, I liked being different that way. Thank you. You see, I had an identity crisis. My father wanted me to be the next Henny Youngman. My mother wanted me to be the next Joshua Heifetz. So when I play in the orchestra, I get totally confused. Jews walk into a bar. But then I got, I think I realized that I'd outgrown my teacher in the sense that I wasn't really progressing in ways that um, I wanted to. So I ended up getting to study with a violin professor at Indiana University. So for the last two or three years in high school, I would drive down to Bloomington and have lessons. And that's when I got more serious about violin, really practicing a few hours a day, and taking it more seriously. And would you say that was, I mean, was violin your main interest at that point? One of them, okay. yeah. I mean, I would say of any artistic endeavor, for sure. But um, I was also really funny and always doing stuff <laughs> that like was contrary to being a serious musician. So, okay. Yeah. Uh,
0: was violin, I wonder, was it sort of the first organized, you know, because violin, you, you've got to there's a way, not that it's always right, but there's a way to go about things and you do it every day. Was that the first sort of organized extracurricular yes. that...
1: I would say that's true. Okay. Yeah, I wouldn't... Also, it was the first organized way that guaranteed me a performing time because I love getting to be in front of audiences and entertain and get accolades. So getting to do, you know, some recitals and then uh, there was like a, a statewide competition where these judges would you weren't competing against other musicians you were competing against yourself oh you get a rating a rating solo and on so every year i would do that and i loved it okay and i just i think i for me any opportunity to be on stage in front of an audience was a good thing i was gonna ask because that's not
0: I, i i did enjoy performing i mean i and i didn't get so nervous when i was a kid but it wasn't I guess mostly I I knew that there was a thing I was supposed to do, and I wanted to do it well and kind of get through it unscathed on the other side. But I wouldn't necessarily say I relished the chance to be in front of people, but you did. I did. Wow. For sure. And that continued through high school. Through high school. So then
1: by the time I was applying to colleges and stuff, I had by then decided that though I loved violin and I wanted to be, if I could have had the talent that I thought was required to be a great violinist or even a really good professional violinist, I would have pursued it. But by then I decided I was left-handed. I had double-jointedness. I had a lot of tension in my, like, there were too many obstacles that I felt were going to stop me because I was looking at other peers of mine who just were, didn't have some of those issues. And I thought, I could never compete with this. Well, you talked about walking through the the practice halls at IU. Correct. And I hear someone playing a Paganini Caprice going like, oh my God, I got to check out, what professor this is, and then it's an 11-year-old Korean kid. I'm going, oh, no. Yeah, I've been there, I, for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. And so I think it was humbling, but I also was a realist. And I also had this other dream of, since I was a performer, like, maybe I can be a comedian. That doesn't, you know, doesn't affect how your left-hand technique is to be a good comic. So um, I decided I would go to NYU, New York University. I got admitted as an actor, but I also got a little music scholarship because um, the orchestra wasn't particularly strong and they wanted me to be in the orchestra as assistant concertmaster. Ah. So um, I did that and could continue studying privately during my years. I had a teacher at Manhattan School of Music for a few years.
0: I see you did. Because uh, Akiko went to Manhattan. She did. Pre-college. Mm-hmm. That's great. May I ask who you studied with? It was here? Stanley
1: Bednar. Okay. Who was, like a, again, a real old school guy. Uh-huh. Um, but the teacher who I... Studied at IU, worshipped um, Raphael Bronstein, mm. who was like apparently like one of the gurus at Manhattan School during that era. Okay, um, but uh, I would take the subway from Greenwich Village when I went to New York University, you know, to Harlem to my lessons, which was cool. Just like a, another part of New York I didn't know. Yeah, um, and then I stopped studying probably by the time I was twenty. That was the last time I had private lessons. Uh, how do
0: you go about? Becoming a comic, becoming a comedian,
1: because well, that had to start also in high school and before. Yes. I mean, I think it was something that I just always liked doing and was good at, meaning not necessarily being the class clown because I wasn't disruptive in that way, but just being witty and having the ability to verbally use my humor as a weapon, for mm-hmm. sure, and, and write, write funny stuff all the time. I, there's a paper I saw recently from fourth grade, where a teacher wrote on it, do you have to make everything funny? And she was (laughs) pissed. But I love the fact that my parents, they were kind of proud of that, that they recognized they had a special skill at it. The problem is, back when I was growing up, you know there were so few professional comedians, and my dad would, he loved comedy, he was a funny guy, he'd get me out of bed to watch stand-ups on Johnny Carson. Wow. And so... He treated it like, as an art form, which is really neat. But there weren't comedy clubs like there are now with, in every city. And there weren't TV shows other than Carson, really, and a couple others that had comedians. So it didn't seem like a real profession you could go into.
0: And you, uh, you pretty much had to go to New York then. New York or mm-hmm. L.A., I would say so, yeah. And had you gotten any performing experience uh,
1: doing that while you were still in Indiana. Not really. No, I mean, only at, at a high school. Um, you know, they sometimes have the morning announcements. Right, have, okay. So I would use the that opportunity to do that. And then I would do an impression of our principal and get in huge trouble because <laughs> the students loved it. But then the people who had me do it go, you cannot do that anymore. You're mocking him. <laughs> um, so yeah, any opportunity to get laughs in front of an audience, I would pretty much take. Yeah, I love, there's a Simpsons where, yeah, Bart,
0: uh, bills himself as the boy of a thousand voices. And as soon as he does an impression of Principal Skinner, Skinner says, you're about to be the boy of a thousand days detention. (laughs) The guy that I went to high school with that did the announcements my senior year, and he was class president. He's currently in LA. He owns a small comedy club. Really? I mean, we're the same age. And I know he occasionally gets up to perform. But yeah, it's funny how, you know, I can totally see that with him. And even more so, with you, with the experiences you, you've had. So that must have taken enormous confidence then to, to go to the big city from the Midwest, you know, with that focus, knowing that that's what you wanted to do. How much of that is writing and performing uh, kind of when you
1: were in school? What was the balance there? I would say that ultimately stand-up is a performance art form. But to be a really good comic that does television sets regularly, and has stuff that's kind of timeless, that's when the writing comes in. And so I love the combination of getting to put on paper things that I thought would be funny to present in front of strangers. Because that's always the key with stand-up, is it's the transition of... It's one thing to make your friends and family laugh, but to go up in front of people who have no idea who you are, that's really the challenge. Yeah, because I'm you, starting to sweat already. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> there's no... There's no sort of give of like, oh, I already know Hugh and he's a funny guy. It's like I'm literally in Midland, Texas when I'm 25 years old. I've never been to Texas in my life performing to people in cowboy hats who don't know who the hell I am. Mm -hmm. And like that to me is the ultimate test of a stand-up. But I like the combination of writing and performing. And that's so interesting for me to think of. I mean, with
0: me and most of... You know, most fellow violinists, I mean, we're all we're starting with the strong material. You know, it's it's been around, <laughs> it's stood the test of time, and that's all we're supposed to do, now this can be obviously limiting too, all we're supposed to do is go out and perform it well, but uh, to write your own, and as you say, get up in cold in front of people that don't know you, that's part of it, right? I mean, they get to know you, or at least they get to trust you if it's going to be a successful performance. That's correct. Almost immediately. And the more they
1: trust you, more, the more you get away with In fact, it makes it easier to try out new material that maybe isn't as strong or doesn't work because if they already trust you and you try something that doesn't work, they're forgiving. But if you're a new performer and they don't trust you, then like at any moment, things can go south. Uh, And we we met through a mutual
0: friend, uh, Mishnah Wolf, who um, was nice enough to do an interview with me wrote an article on natesviolin.com about the performance nerves, uh yeah, the whole per- performing aspect of um stand-ups and what violinists can learn from that. And it was shocking to me how much time she spent in front of people before, you know, before the big one, mm-hmm. before the performance that mattered. And that was such a great reminder to me, uh you know, of of the risks I needed to, to take. And also to perhaps to be a little easier on myself if I was performing a piece for the first time, and not feeling comfortable with it, mm-hmm. you know, she was saying, why, why would you feel comfortable with it, <laughs> you know, what you're you're trying to prepare by yourself in a practice room, this thing things you've never done in front of people, why would you expect you would just go in front of people, and do it, and um, but
1: that is, I think, what we expect. That is, and I, I, it's why I don't like the process of acting auditions, which I've uh, done a little of. To me, that's for someone who loves performing and is good at it, that's the most unnerving thing for me. Like to sit home and work alone on a script memorizing my part and then be put into a room with a casting director and maybe another actor. Mm. It's it's terrifying.
0: But you have, you've been on some shows, you've been in in films as well. Mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite performing experiences? Let Let's say before we talk about stand-up and before we talk about writing, because you've been writing for some huge shows. Sure. Um, what are some of the performances that stand out
1: for you? Well, one, and I'm not saying this just because I'm doing the Nathan Cole podcast, but <laughs> one that absolutely stands out was, is I opened for Jon Stewart at Carnegie Hall. Uh-huh. And Alan King, the legendary comedian, was the host. So he brought me on stage. He introduced me. I did 20 minutes. And then Jon Stewart followed me as the headliner and did maybe 45 But even Jon Stewart couldn't get over. He's like, Hugh, I'm happy to be here. But for you, this must be, you're never going to top this. Like, (laughs) you're a a violinist. You've played a long time. You're at Carnegie Hall getting to play your violin on stage in front of a sold-out crowd, but as a comedian. (laughs) I haven't done that. Right, right. (laughs) But it was remarkable. And to be in the dressing room and like, There's those photos, you know, Mm -hmm. of of Kutsovitsky or whomever. And John's like, I don't know who the f*** these people are. (laughs) But I knew who they all were. So for me, it felt very at home to get to have this experience. Yeah, that's such a special place. That was really special.
0: Now, do you write write for other, or have you written for other stand-ups? Or is that something that really doesn't happen? Stand-ups write their own?
1: Stand-ups write their own until they're so successful that they don't have to anymore. Okay. Now, the exception to that would be Jerry Seinfeld, who, to my knowledge, to this day, still writes his own stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyone who hosts a talk show, Letterman, Leno, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, they're not writing anything. Mm-hmm. Their whole staff of you know 10 to 15 writers is writing for them. And even Ellen DeGeneres, who's a great stand-up, who I worked with early in my career, she's going to do a TV special now, she announced. Oh. And I have already heard that she'll tweak it but she'll definitely have several writers come up with stuff for her because she doesn't have the time. It's the most time-consuming thing to work on your act and write stand-up. It's not something that you can just do quickly. Uh, like spare, with, time. spare time. <laughs> Chris Rock also, he gets help, but he loves writing and is a good writer. So he'll write some of his own stuff okay, we've actually we've got tickets to see him in November. I think it is
0: here in l a Great when he comes, yeah because so, I've never seen him live. mm hmm now he's terrific. Well, was your experience typical, and what is that sort of uh uh the progression you know you're writing for this person or this show, and then you go on to this other thing, or maybe
1: there isn't a standard path there's I would say there's not a standard. It's like for every person it works out differently. for me, getting on Saturday Night Live as a writer. I proved very early on that I was super adept at monologues
0: because uh. I
1: can, as a stand-up, not only can I write jokes that work for a live audience, but um, I could adapt my comedic sense to whoever the host was and sort of write something in their voice. And that's a commodity because some writers can only write in their own voice. Uh, I think uh. I've seen some of those monologues. <laughs> 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 yes. So, I think I did write more monologues than any other writer during my tenure at Saturday Night Live. And um, when were those years? So they were, to make it simple, the Will Ferrell years. <laughs> I started and left with him. So okay. started in 1995, left in 2002. This was a seven-year run. Okay. And um, from that, I got the confidence and experience to go on to doing TV shows and other things where I was hired to write for one person. I see. Like D.L. Hughley, the African-American comedian. So he had a short-lived political talk show on CNN that we did in New York. Yeah, it was right when Obama was elected his first term. It was called D.L. Breaks the News. It was a great show. And so I was um, one of D.L.'s main guys writing monologue, bits for him. Yeah. Uh,
0: Was he uh, in the original Kings of Comedy? He was. was, Okay, that's correct. We just saw that for the first time. I don't know why it had taken so long. but Mm -hmm. Yeah. What a talent. He's a huge talent. and He was great in that movie. So just, I mean, we could stay on SNL, I'm sure, for, for quite a while. But what's a, a look at the, the writing process? First of all, how many writers might be involved in a week's?
1: Well, I always say too many is the answer <laughs> to that. But there's like 15 to 20 writers during a week. And the process of writing actually occurs only in a few days per week, meaning Monday and Tuesday are the days you're writing for that Saturday show because by Wednesday, they pick the sketches for the week. So at that point, Thursday and Friday are rehearsal days. The only okay. thing new that would be written is if there's some breaking news story oh, right. that they want to address, which does happen, but the majority of the show was written you know, Monday and Tuesday.
0: So they pick the material before anybody's
1: actually read through it. Universal. No, the, there's a on Wednesday. There's a huge table read oh, okay. with all the cast. Okay, and when you're the writer, you assign who you want to read each part. Ah, which is tremendous power. I was I had no idea. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, writers at Saturday Night Live have more power than on any other TV show that I know of, which is fantastic. Now that
0: has to lead to some conflicts, depending on
1: it does. It's I think Lauren Michaels, in a cool way, he he respects writers as producers and felt like they know in their head who should be cast. They know the strengths and weaknesses of the cast. Let them decide. If he has any disagreements, he can change it. But he generally sticks to what the writers want. And it's the only show on TV where the greatest performers on the show are still beholden to the writers. (laughs) Because if you're not a good writer, which many SNL cast members aren't, you're not going to do well. Right. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Makes me wish that, I don't know, especially in this day and age, they could have a little ticker on the bottom or something, you know, that would let you know who's writing. I'd love that. What you're listening to. That'd be great. There must have been some sort of uh, magic combinations. Are you able to say maybe who one or two of your favorite performers to write
1: for? Like sure. where they say, okay, it's Hugh and so-and-so, this Absolutely. is going to be. So uh, during my years, I loved writing for Norm MacDonald. Okay. He was a stand-up like me. I knew him before either of us were on the show. okay. Um, Tracy Morgan, I think I was the first writer at SNL to really write for him (laughs) because he was a fish out of water. He didn't know anybody on the show. Uh, And um, he had a hard time adjusting to the world of Saturday Night Live and Lauren Michaels, but I did um, collaborate and sometimes just come up with stuff for him his first few seasons. Yeah, yeah. for sure.
0: Wow. Are there... um... Just because that info isn't so readily available, are, are there sketches that I'm going to know,
1: or that our audience is going to know that, that were your? Uh... I think so. Um, so for Norm Macdonald, I, I wrote all his Larry Kings. Oh, really? A real impact at the time. People loved those, <laughs> and they were they were wow. pretty vicious, deliberately so, because I <laughs> I hated what Larry King had become, <laughs> and so I really wanted to skewer him. And Norm did a brilliant impression of him. Yeah. So we did that a lot. Um, for Tracy, there was a talk show we did twice called Pimp Chat. Yeah. So I wrote Pimp Chat. <laughs> <laughs> and then my most infamous recurring sketch was Mr. Peepers with Chris Kattan. Oh, uh, wow. Well. The half monkey, <laughs> half boy who'd spit <laughs> apples at your face. But yes, it was written. I had to write when he'd spit the apple and all that stuff.
0: I mean, there are so many sketches that worked. And I, was, I, I always try to imagine how must this have sounded on the first reading because it just... They seem like they wouldn't look funny on paper to me, but obviously the people behind it, there's that chemistry between the writers and performers. For
1: sure. And when you attend the table read, it's a joyous experience because you're seeing some amazingly talented actors bring what you've written to life. And they go full throttle because they're competitive. They want to get their sketch on the air. Uh, So there's no holding back. Like sometimes they'll even put on a wig or, or use a prop just to help with the ah, laughter. Huh. So you're seeing like a very, very rough version of the sketch performed it, live.
0: And the audience for this is just the other just writers? The and the, well, It's okay. not just
1: the writers. It's the um, the hair and makeup people, huh. the associate director. So there's probably, there could be like 50 people in that room. Okay. 50, 60. So when you get a laugh, it's a big laugh. It's almost like a sizable comedy club audience.
0: Wow. Yeah. And so what are the... What are the qualities that, that I mean, because it's so fast paced um, to write in that environment? Obviously, you have to be able to produce work quickly. Are you given any direction beforehand about what you, you're going to write about, or it's
1: just up Remarkably, you're you given no direction. Okay. Zero. And so, that, like, artistically, that's brilliant. And, <laughs> but sometimes when you're having a slow week, you're like, oh, man, I don't know what to write. It'd almost be easier if someone said, all right, I need you to write, here's the premise.
0: And did it happen too? I mean, there must've been performers that were very popular to write for and others maybe that weren't. Totally. And is that part of what, is that part of why people would leave the show or be asked to leave? Yes,
1: absolutely. Because people just weren't interested in... Yeah. And um, one thing people are surprised at is there's no equality on the show, meaning... It's not as if they go, oh, this poor cast member doesn't have anything written for them. Uh, it's like, well, maybe the reason that cast members are not having things written for them is because people don't think they're that funny. Uh, so it's survival of the fittest. Right. And yeah, when you have a star like Will Ferrell, a high percentage of stuff is being written where if he's not the star of it, he's in it. Uh-huh. And then there may be two other actors on the show where they're only included in four sketches out of 40 at the table read. Wow,
0: mm-hmm. and so how long would this reading go? Several so, hours, okay. because it's, it's, it is about yeah.
1: thirty to forty sketches read out loud from start to finish. Now, who picked the hosts? Lorne Michaels, along with a small team of talent producers. Okay, so they would. Their job was to like keep him informed about who's hip, who's hot, because there's no way he would know some of these people. Right, and he has the. He was the arbiter of saying yes, no, or maybe.
0: And was it always just one writer per monologue?
1: Generally. uh, Yes. I would say you're... Like, I was allowed to, if I wanted to go to another writer and say, help me Uh with this, for sure. But monologues especially seem to be written primarily by one person.
0: Okay. And so what was the transition like, or how did you know when it was time
1: to, to leave the show? Well, that's a great question. For me, it was... The law of diminishing returns. I had gotten a taste of performing on the show. I did get an opportunity a few times. Yep. And um, the best time was when Al Gore and Joe Lieberman were the presidential candidates. I did a great Joe Lieberman impression. Uh. So I got to do it. I did a weekend update piece as myself. And the premise of it was there's only out of 20 writers at Saturday Night Live, I was one year the only Jewish writer. And that's why the show sucks. That was my premise. <laughs> and everyone loved it. Lauren thought it was funny, and they let it on the air. And it was when Tina Fey and Jimmy Fallon were the hosts of Weekend Update. Oh, okay. So they introduced me as writer Hugh Fink. But <laughs> within my uh, my premise, I, I got in my Joe Lieberman impression because Lieberman <laughs> was Jewish. I forget how I do it. And that went over really well, and I got big laughs. And so that was maybe my fourth or fifth year as a writer on the show. And it brought me right back to my performing roots and accomplishments are going like, I want to be on this show. I don't want to write anymore. Uh-huh. So I think once it became clear to me that I was still primarily going to be a writer and not be given the opportunity to perform that much, I felt like I got to move on. Because mm-hmm. seven years is a long time to be there. And is that, did you have already things lined up then? Uh, I got a job offer in Los Angeles for a brand new sitcom. So... That was the impetus for me making the move. Wow. Well, and
0: so had you considered living in LA before that? I mean, was it a place that you wanted to come? No, or? I
1: had told all my friends I'd never be back. It <laughs> <That's>, that sounds <laughs> a little like-, like uh, Saturday Night Live, <laughs> this is my dream. I want out of LA. I'll come back to visit and do some gigs, but I'm never gonna live here again. Things changed and it became clear to me that after Saturday Night Live, there's no real upward move in New York. Uh-huh. You know, there's Conan O'Brien, there was The Daily Show, but it's not like there's many shows to work on in mm. New York. So that's why most people end up back in Los Angeles.
0: Well, and so was the sitcom, uh, was that a long-term thing or it just, that's what it brought you back? Short,
1: yeah, it did bring me back. It became a short-term thing because it bombed. And uh, this is an example for you, Nathan, of how it was like a dream team of comedy writers huh. based on their credits. There was Greg Daniels, who created the American version of The Office, and he was, he was the executive producer of King of the Hill. Huh. George Meyer, who's one of the most famous writers in hmm. The Simpsons. Um, Will Gluck, who's beyond become a huge um, director of feature films, was a writer on the show. Okay. Um, it was remarkable how many A-list comedy writers were on the staff of this NBC show, which is one of the reasons I took the job. Uh-huh. My agent said, "You're going to be in great company," and this show's like there's never been a writing staff like this. Yeah. It was canceled after like six episodes, <sighs> and it was not a good show. Hmm. And even you thought, was, even I, even yeah. I did. Yeah, I was, and it was unfortunately it, it reminded me of like why I don't watch a lot of sitcoms, uh. traditional ones, because I find them very. Sort of um, forced and not based in a reality that I like.
0: Well, it's amazing, you know, thinking back to my childhood. I mean, that's what was on. I mean, there was a, just about nothing else. And you know, since I was a kid, I wasn't thinking about, oh, you know, what else might they put on TV. It was just that—that's what a TV that's show what it was. was, right? Well, at that at that point, had TV sort of moved on from the sitcom,
1: and this was a bit more of a throwback, or was this still when sitcoms were? This is with the height of Friends. Okay. Yeah, so uh, okay. the show I worked on, they were th- they were trying to think of as a replacement for Friends. It was NBC. It was the whole must-see TV era. Okay. So that was sort of um, what was going on. Frasier was wrapping up. Okay. Everybody Loves Raymond. Like those shows right. were had been on eight or nine years, so they were coming to a close. Okay, so this was meant to be another big staple in the... In the... Okay. Exactly. And so how did you move on? So the show was canceled, which at the time I was sort of like, well, this is what I rooted for. Ah. <laughs> um, and then it was a great lesson to me of like, okay, I don't want to be stuck now on this track of working on sitcoms that I don't like. That's not satisfying, especially coming from Saturday Night Live, where so much of that experience was joyous and exciting. So I ended up doing the final season of the Drew Carey show, which is a very successful... Another mm-hmm. sitcom that had had a good run, and I was on its final season. So creatively it was very limiting because the show worked. They had their characters. they just right. needed, you know, funny people to write jokes, but you're not going to reinvent anything. Sure. But while I was there, and it was a very talented writing staff, I was able to have free time to go, what do I want to do? Mm-hmm. What do I want to do? So I created the showbiz show with David Spade, uh-huh. which became my first. Series uh, that I got on the air and it ran for three seasons on Comedy Central. Yeah, and it was very much in my voice because it, this was pre TMZ, uh, pre viral videos. It was a really irreverent, honestly funny look at show business and pop culture. And this was yours in the set. I mean, were you
0: you were show creator? What's I was. The I was title? the sole creator.
1: Okay. I, the pilot, David Spade wasn't involved with. Okay. There was another comedian who I cast to host it. And um, it went well, but the network wanted a bigger star to host the show. Okay. And they got spayed. And it worked. And it worked.
0: Ah. Now, we've, we're going to come back in the end to what you're doing right now. Um, we've skipped over some of what makes you... I won't say unique because <laughs> there's at least one other person that's uh, put violin into their comedy... But when I've watched your videos, um, where you're actually not just, you know, talking about the violin or bringing your experience with the violin in an abstract way, but literally putting the violin up there right. in front of the microphone, I mean, your uh, your impression of someone sort of faking the audience out as to whether, you know, when they're done or not. Yeah. It's just, had, we we went back and watched it like 10 times in a row. Oh, that's We're awesome. Dying.
1: Say, does um anyone happen to have a 18th century Italian violin I could borrow? I don't believe it.
0: Um, How did you, I mean, for me, it would just be courage, I guess. How how did you find the courage or
1: how did you decide, you know, people are going to laugh at this. I'm going to bring a violin up Right. Well, keep in mind, as a kid, my background had been entertaining people. If I play the violin, and I always found that people were impressed with the kid who plays the violin decently. Mm -hmm. And maybe you experienced this too. It's an instrument that people know is hard and they know that it can sound really bad Uh. when it's played poorly. So if you're a young person who plays it in tune and with any dexterity, I found people are kind of impressed. So I think my instinct told me, if I can figure out funny ways, clever ways to incorporate my violin into my stand-up, but not in the Jack Benny persona, where I'm trying to talk about how a violinist I am, but almost do the Victor Borga model, where people go, oh my God, he actually can play. Now, I say Victor Borga because I only wish that my violin skills were as good as his piano <laughs> skills, because he seemed like a really good pianist to me. Mm-hmm. I'm nowhere nearly that good on violin. But for the layman at a comedy club, I'm a great violinist.
0: <laughs> well, but you, I mean, that's, we. Akiko uh, and I were watching it and saying, like, well, he's really good. Like well, he really, you. you know, he really could play. Like I wondered, you know, <laughs> when did he decide not to? That's keep nice. Playing because, no, it, and but I, you need that because yeah, even people who don't know violin playing specifically are good. You know, they can sense if you're you really know what you're doing, and, right? And and if you feel it now, we so you mentioned Jack Benny, kind of the elephant in the the violin comedy room, and a little later uh, after we turn the mics off, I'm gonna have you place on play on his Stradivarius, Um, it's amazing to me to think of a time when, yeah, a violin playing comic was, you know, one of the most famous people in the world and could essentially play a version of himself, not not himself, but a version of, and at the same time tour as a violinist. Uh, You know, my grandfather was in the Philadelphia Orchestra back in the 40s through the 60s and, and played at least one concert with Jack Benny. Um, and he he remembered enough of the jokes and the, the bits to tell me, yeah, you know, Jack Benny goes up and tries to play the Mendelssohn concerto and the concertmaster taps him and shows him how it's done. And then, <laughs> you know, next, uh, one of the ushers, who was really a violinist in the orchestra, jumps up and takes the violin, plays it better. And finally, it's a janitor. And, oh, that's you know, awesome. He's, he's got the, the look down and all that. Uh-huh. There are still, I, I meet some young people today who have seen those thanks to YouTube. I mean, I'm, I bet there was a period of 20 years where... Young people didn't really know who he was. Sure, but now if you're if you're a violinist on Facebook or whatever, someone's going to be sharing some of those videos with you.
1: Um, I mean, was that ever part of your inspiration? It honestly wasn't. Like, it's weird for me when I play comedy clubs as a young stand-up, and older people would right. go, "You're like a Jack Benny," and that reference to me was. I I knew it because everyone would mention it. Uh But I didn't have... There was no YouTube when I was in my 20s. So I had not seen Jack Benny very much. Right. I knew, though, from stories my parents told me stuff that he was a genuinely funny, like a brilliantly funny guy separate from the violin. Mm -hmm. Just his whole shtick and his persona and had great timing. And I knew all that. But I wasn't really familiar or influenced by his violin stuff at all. And then there was Henny Youngman. It was mm. another, you know, violin playing comic, but unlike Benny, I think Henny Youngman truly wasn't a good violinist, right? Right. But he just truly used it as a device to tell his old school one liners, uh-huh. which is a funny. It's a funny conceit. Um, yeah. Have you gone back and
0: watched any of the like the Jack Benny episodes? Because that that's what strikes me looking looking back is that it was. More, than, I mean, and one-liners are great too. But he was putting together these episodes, you know, centering on his violin playing. And you know, and I'm not to, familiar <laughs> with those.
1: I'd probably love them, but yeah, I, I'm not.
0: I just, I, I wondered they must have come off well at the time, or he wouldn't have remained as popular as he was. But it's just, it's funny to me, yeah. How you know, Jack Benny comes home, he's depressed about his violin <laughs> playing. Uh, You know, Rochester's bought him a new, not bought him, but he's helping him operate then his new tape recorder. Uh-huh. And, Meanwhile, he's got Isaac Stern stashed in the closet to, <laughs> really? to fake the... Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Wow. He's, the setup is he's going to have Jack Benny play into the recording machine and pretend to play it back. But in reality, he's got his friend Isaac Stern stashed in the closet, who's going to play the thing when he says playback, <laughs> and it goes, goes wrong. And
1: yeah. That's amazing. So it's just uh, a different time. Well, it shows uh, how clever minds think alike because... I did a bit, unfortunately, I don't think is on tape, huh. but um, I did it with Tracy Morgan and Josh Bell. Oh, really? Who I don't know if I mentioned... On no, air, not, he's not a yet. Of mine. So we did the bit several times. We did it at the Montreal Comedy Festival, and we did it in New York a few times. So the bit was, I'd be doing my violin comedy, and the crowd would like it, and then Tracy Morgan would rush the stage as Tracy Morgan. Of course, he, <laughs> he was a celebrity, and people loved him, and he would like... You think? Let me tell you something, man. You violin sucks. I'm like Tracy, actually, that's not true. And he's like, you, you, you sound shitty. and I'm like Tracy, the crowd will disagree with you. And Tracy's like, anybody can play a violin; it's not that hard. I would go, Tracy, that's ridiculous. So Tracy, at that point, would turn to the audience and say, "I'm gonna find anyone and bring them up here." He found Josh Bell, who the crowd. Didn't know. right? So Josh Bell, who's, uh, you know, comes up as an unassuming audience member and Tracy's like, give me your violin, Fink. So I hand (laughs) Tracy my violin. At which point Tracy starts to teach Josh Bell how to hold the violin, Uh. (laughs) how to hold the bow. And Tracy's instructing him. And Josh starts off playing incredibly awkwardly and badly and then sort of stammers into playing some Vanyowski thing <laughs> and the crowd going nuts uh, and then Tracy going, f*** y'all, that's Josh yeah. Bell. Grab me award <laughs> So the bit would kill. And of course, nowadays, this was 10 years ago, it'd be a harder bit to get away with maybe because some people would recognize Josh. Mm-hmm. But as long as some of the crowd doesn't know Josh, it worked great. Yeah. And if people, and you know, if you guys sell it. Exactly. We sold it and Josh was great. You know, he's, he's a natural performer. He's got a good sense of humor. Yeah. He loved the, the premise of him having to be this clumsy guy. <laughs> and Tracy was great. And so, yeah, that was a really fun bit.
0: Tell me how you came to know Joshua Bell. I know you grew up not far
1: from yeah, So he's from Bloomington, Indiana, where his parents were at the Kinsey Institute. And I'm from Indianapolis. And some of my friends from Indianapolis who ended up at the Indiana School of Music knew Josh when he was a teenager, when he was studying with Gingold and everyone said I knew who he was. So I think one time I was invited down there to Bloomington and they introduced me to him and uh, we kind of hit it off. I was already, I think I was maybe a high school senior or a freshman in college, but he thought I was funny. And then when I moved to LA and started doing stand-up, when he'd come out here as a kid to play with the LA Philharmonic or give recitals, He'd come to see me at the comedy store, uh, but he was not of age to get in. Okay. So his mom would bring him. <laughs> his mom would have to lug him to the comedy club. And he like couldn't wait to be on his own yeah. to travel and stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. And then Josh, when he'd play with the L.A. Philharmonic, I'd always come to his concerts, and I got to become friendly with Mitch Newman and some of the other musicians.
0: Wow. And I know Mitch... Uh... Mitch was the one, I think, that told me about not only you, but going to some comedy clubs right when I first came here. So like, really? Yeah, when I first moved out to L.A., I, I was kind of blown away, like, wow, this is where they made The prices Right. You know, <laughs> that was my favorite show as a four-year-old. And it's like uh, I didn't even know where to start. And so he was like, you got to get out to, you know, to see some
1: comedy. That's one of the things that's amazing about living out here. He's right. Well, I'm pretty sure Mitch attended... One of my other major favorite performances was, I was on the Rodney Dangerfield HBO Young Comedian Special, mm-hmm. which is taped at Royce Hall at UCLA. Oh, okay. And um, Mitch came to see me do that as well. And was uh, were you playing violin as I part was. of that? I was, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, in a couple
0: minutes, I'm going to see if you want to play some more violin. Fantastic. Uh, I, think the, I think the stage is open for us. Uh, I'm very much looking um, forward to it. Tell, tell us what you're up to right now. You, you
1: had a great sounding uh, show that you're doing now. Right. So I just completed as a producer writer season two of the, the television series Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg's potluck dinner party. <laughs> so you can see why it's called that because Snoop is truly always stoned. Martha gets drunk on the air because it's a cooking show with celebrities where they each they'll take one type of food, like let's say New Orleans food and Martha will make her Martha Stewart shrimp po'boys, and Snoop will make his dirty rice and grits from the hood. Uh-huh. Um, but they cook on the show, they have celebrities on the show, and they get wasted because Martha's making cocktails the whole time. <laughs> so like on the New Orleans show, she made a, I think it's called a Cesarac. Okay, yeah. And uh, they were just, they're gone. <laughs> like it's, the tapings take two hours plus, yeah, yeah. and they're eating and drinking, but uh, they have great chemistry. Martha and Snoop, they're friends, and uh strangely enough, they have things in common to talk about. <laughs>
0: and are you performing on that show? I'm not like performing, you're, no, you're, just you're, producing you're, and writing. Wow. Great. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming down to Disney Hall and uh letting us in on yeah, how you the, the path you took from violinist to
1: comic and keeping those two uh enmeshed the whole time. Oh, it's a pleasure. And um, you know, I, I always feel like my roots studying violin had a profound influence on my ability to just be fearless about performing stand-up. Well, wow. So they go hand in hand for me. Great. Well, thank you so much. A pleasure.